Canto 25 of the Purgatory opens at midday, Dante describes, and it's a canto full of vigour, full of life. Look, you're starting palpably to sense the possibility of knowing paradise at this stage. They've seen the waters of everlasting life flowing down over the trees. They're with Statius, whose will is aligned with God. They can feel that alignment in themselves, the possibility of it. It never felt closer. And so it's not surprising that as they now climb the stairs to the last terrace of purgatory, that Dante is about to burst. He says that they walk with a necessity that no one has known. He himself, he describes himself like a, a young stork who's trying to lift his wings to fly and leave the nest. He says also that he's desperate to ask questions but can't quite find the words. As is appropriate because not only has their experience been tremendous, raising all sorts of possibilities about life that you know maybe he'd half glimpsed before but now feels he might actually start to experience directly but there's still this sense of in a way everything to happen ahead so much that's gone before has been in a way just preparation for the experience which now feels palpably promised so little wonder that he's desperate to kind of ask for more to push on to fly um, to leave you might say the nest of his parents like the young stork leaving the nest, whether that be, you know, the nest of the experiences of his life thus far, the nest of the Christianity that's informed him thus far, maybe also the nest formed by the two parents that he's with, Virgil and Statius. I might say that Dante's erotic desire is really beginning to sense that perhaps it can lift him into a new experience of life by becoming more perceptually capable. Remember that it was when he was about to enter purgatory proper that he realised that erotic desire was going to be so important, but that it was weighed down by his desire to possess and to hold. He'd begun to sense that there might be a new way that erotic love could flow through him because it could participate in the divine life and so be lifted, be carried as he became more and more capable to be lifted and carried. You know, and a lot has happened now with that possibility. And so he wants to know more. He wants to bring together um, this erotic side and this intellectual side. Remember, intellectual meaning, being able to share and know what the divine intellect knows that forms the whole cosmos. That sense of flowing with things, in being embedded in things, knowing things because you participate it in the very core of your being. All that is pressing in on him. So little wonder that Virgil says, look, ask your question. I can see that you are like an archer pulling back their bow so hard that the tip of the bow, the tip of the arrow is pressing up against the wood of the bow. And Dante asks a question, I think he just sort of reaches for one that in a way will do, because it 
does in fact lead to um, a sort of explosion of insight um, as the canto unfolds. But he asks a good one. He asks, look, how is it that the souls they've just seen in their purging, in their struggle to align their will with the divine will, how is it that their bodies so evidently looked like they were starving? Because they don't have physical bodies, so they can't starve in the way that people might do on earth. You know, how is it that their souls so clearly show this spiritual starvation? And it's a good question because although they did count a lot of souls on the previous terraces of purgatory, none had experienced what they were undergoing in quite such an embodied way. You know, the, the proud had been carrying the fullness of themselves on their backs. Um, they'd been eyes stitched together, they'd been bodies pressed to the ground, um, but none quite so vividly as the souls they'd just seen. So Virgil says, look, there's an important thing you need to understand now, which is that in these realms, things aren't caused directly. Rather, they're caused by a kind of sympathy or a kind of reflection that then shows up in the soul of the individual. Souls, you might say, are not mechanical bodies, as we're inclined today to think of our bodies as kind of very fancy machines. I mean, in parenthesis, I think that's only one model that you can use to describe even the, even the physical body. Um, but that must certainly be true of what you might call our more subtle bodies, certainly our soulful bodies. And Virgil offers Dante and then a couple of analogies that might help to explain how this more um, subtle side of ourselves works. He, he refers, first of all, to the ancient myth of Maliga. And he was said to be able to live so long as a log burned in a fire. And his mother, to preserve his life, removed the log from the fire in order that it would never burn out. But then Maliga um, inadvertently, in a rather tortuous story, killed his two uncles, his mother's brothers. And so she put the log back in the fire and it burnt up. And sure enough, Maliga expired. So his life, his vitality, depended upon something to which he was connected, but only indirectly, the log burning in the fire. And, you know, maybe you can see how the imagery there works a bit, that if life is a bit fiery, so it might burn out the more substantial part of ourselves sort of represented by the heavier log. Virgil also says it's a bit like looking at your image in a mirror, that much as the image body moves in response to the physical body, the physical body doesn't quite cause the image body. Um, it's something about the reflection, something about the mirror, and yet they move very directly together. So, too, that kind of opens up a sort of space to try and start to imaginatively get a feeling for how the physical body relates to the soul, relates to the spirit, these various levels of our being. I actually think that those analogies are still quite valid now because it's very unclear from the purely machine model of the human body, how we have vitality, how we have consciousness, how we feel. 
and how we have designs, goals. Um, our life has a kind of organic shape. Um, it unfolds. You know, machines just do not do that. Um, so they're still valid today, I think. Um, in the sense that the medieval mind would have meant, though, which was that theories about how the world works were designed to illuminate the experience of the world working. And they were designed, as it was put, to save the appearances, to try and give you some perceptual depth into what was going on. And so you might have more than one theory, more than one myth, if you like, um, in order to cast a different light on experience. Um, and that, I think, is very much how this canto is supposed to be working. You know, it's a bit like if you read the stories of near-death experiences, um, NDEs, um, you know, people have very powerful experiences. They describe them with immense vividness, but it inevitably raises the question of, you know, what is this domain that's been experienced? What is the nature of the bodies which are encountered? So Virgil gets the conversation going, and then he turns to Statius, and I think this is a kind of collaboration between the two. You know, Virgil says, look, we've got Statius here um, with the transformed soul that he represents. But Statius says to Virgil, yes, but it's out of my love for you that I'll carry on this story, that I'll expand it further. Um, I think a lot of what Statius describes, Virgil would know, partly because it draws a lot on ancient ideas, although Statius gives it a kind of imaginative development, um, as you'd expect, because we're moving into new ter territory here. What he describes is how the blood forms the body in the womb as an embryo. And when you hear the word blood, don't just think of, you know, blood with haemoglobin, um, as it tends to be described here today. Think of the qualities of blood. On the one hand, you know, think of the sanguine soul, um, you know, from where the word comes, who has a kind of vitality and life. Um, think of what you see of blood, how it clots, how it englobes, so it seems like it forms bodies. Um, remember the old humours idea as well, that the point about the blood humour is that it's a mix of hot and moisture. Um, so it's going to form living bodies because living bodies are hot, but they also carry moisture. Um, so it's thinking of the blood um, as almost a whole kind of part of experience, if you like, a sort of domain of life that has a particular function, a particular role, bringing together certain qualities and making certain things manifest. It's said by Statius that the blood goes into the heart and there it gets what he calls the formative virtues. Now again, don't just think of the heart as a pump. Um, the heart was seen in a way as the centre of the mind, um, where reason and feeling and spirit and insight um, all come together. Um, it's a sort of meeting place um, that brings together all the faculties that we have. And so um, it shares in the divine life as well. It's kind of a meeting place of material life and spiritual life. Um, and so it's not surprising in a way that when this wonderful um, uh, stuff called the blood moves into the heart, it could be imagined as taking on formative powers. Part of those powers um, are just to sustain and nurture the body, but an important part, Statius says, um, are creative, to be able to share, indeed, in the divine 
creation when we human beings procreate and he describes how that intensely creative part of the blood the bit in a way that's closest to the divine creativity is refined further it becomes sperm and then it's it's sprayed he says um, in a you know a wonderful kind of erotic but creative image into um, the woman's womb and there it forms a new life and as the life is formed in the woman's womb it's said to go through various stages first of all it takes on a vegetative stage and this is sometimes referred to as the vegetative soul or the vegetative aspect of the soul which is most like the plants it's the bit that is as it were our basic capabilities to live like plants then it takes on sensitive qualities um, and this is most naturally associated with other animals you know this is the capacity to respond um, consciously to the environment to move around to have emotions and feelings like other animals do so it takes on the sensitive qualities of the soul too and then finally for we human beings at least um, we develop and take on the intellectual capacities and this is the part of us which doesn't just live doesn't just feel and become conscious but also becomes self-conscious and what you might call divine conscious um, that we can start to perceive the qualities of intelligence that fill the cosmos and that are ultimately of God. That is the nature of human perception, at least, which Status explains forms in the womb. And God, it said, delights in this formation. God breathes into um, the new human being at this point. Um, fills it with divine life. Um, it's a wonderful moment of celebration. Um, you know, really interesting because this is nature, you might say, doing its thing um, through the vegetative, through the sensitive soul, through the, the creation of the intellectual soul. Um, but God meets it, God matches it, um, and fills it with divine life as well. There's a kind of bottom-up as well as a top-down description in this myth. Um, you know, so it carries a lot of meaning because it brings together um, our more animal, even plant, even mineral aspects um, with the divine aspect and sees how it knits together into a kind of microcosm that matches the macrocosm of the cosmos as a whole. Statius uses the analogy of the sun turning the moisture of the ground through the vine into the wine, a wonderful transformation. And he says this is how we can both live and feel and know these aspects of our own experience that make up the fullness of human life. But life unfolds and eventually we die. And that's an interesting moment because sometimes we talk of dying as the soul leaving the body. Well, actually, Status says that the flesh leaves the soul, um, the bit that's most associated, you might say, with the material world. Um, and the soul body, the soulful aspects, leave. Um, they go either to the shores of the inferno or to the shores of purgatory to continue their afterlife. And it's said that they carry what has been gathered in life. And in particular, he uses the Augustinian tripart qualities of memory, understanding and will to describe what the soul carries. It's got a past. It's got a sense of that past you know, maybe more or less well-developed, depending on where the soul goes to at this point. But it's got a will 
And again, you know, that will may be turned in on itself or it may be increasingly capable of turning towards God, um, depending on where the soul goes once the flesh has left it. And when it arrives in the afterlife, because of its formative powers, because of its memory, understanding and will, it forms the very air around it um, into a kind of aerial body. Um, it's actually described rather wonderfully as a rainbow body um, in, by Dante, which is quite striking because that's actually a, uh, an understanding of the afterlife, the body in the afterlife, or at the point of moving into the afterlife, that's described in Tibetan traditions. Um, you know, maybe that's partly an appeal to the rainbow, which has this kind of strange mix of being there, but not being substantial. Um, you know, if you go to the end of the rainbow, you won't find the end, and yet we all see it. So it, it, it's quite a natural um, analogy for this new state of the aerial body um, that uh, the dynamic soul forms in the afterlife. And that's what Dante and Virgil have been seeing, Statius explains. That's why the souls of the dead and the shades of the dead can talk, they can speak, um, they can feel, they can suffer, they can be happy. Um, and indeed, to go back to Dante's question originally, it's why the souls of those who fed on the wrong things in life look like they're starving now, feel that intensity of their starvation now, but at the same time can long for spiritual food that's going to fill them in eternity. So it's this wonderful myth with quite a lot of detail, um, you know, worth reading through um, and approaching so as to illuminate our own experience of life as well as our own anticipation of what might happen next. Um, it's not supposed to be the only myth that might describe these things. You know, Dante was well aware there were others around. Um, they actually refer to Islamic myths at one point in the canto. Statius says it's a bit like what Averroes said, but differently. Um, in particular, Averroes had said that the human soul wasn't immortal on its own account, um, whereas in the Christian understanding, I guess because of the incarnation, it was felt that the human soul was immortal on its own account, though of course still depends upon the divine ultimately for that. It's just that in the Islamic tradition, it's the divine dependency is felt much more directly. You know, you might say that uh, in Islam, one pole of our dependency upon the divine is is held the much more direct sense, whereas in Christianity, the sense that we have volition of our own, a kind of life of our own in relation to the divine, that pole of things is more closely celebrated. But it's a wonderful answer to Dante's question, and at least for the moment, you can feel him kind of taking it in, finding some sort of satisfaction. We're quite close towards the end of the canto now. We've seen how we're a bit like flames flickering, um, following the fire in the afterlife. And it's a good final analogy for Statius to give because they arrive at the, stop of the, the top of the staircase on the final terrace. And the first thing they see is extraordinary flames. They're said to be firing out of the side of Mount Purgatory now across the terrace. And as it were, they would make the terrace absolutely impassable. But from the edge of the terrace is blowing hot wind up and it makes the flames turn away so that there's just a thin path that they can follow as they turn to the right to make their way around this terrace. There's an immediately a sense that um, the flames of erotic love 
you know, need to be tracked very carefully um, because they'll make you fall on the one hand or make you burn on the other. Um, and Dante is immediately struck by this um, and is a bit terrified, has to have Virgil um, uh, help him, shore him of the way. Um, they immediately see two um, souls in the very flames and they notice that they're singing um, a hymn, they're singing um, God of all mercy. Um, and then when they've sung that hymn, they also shout out, um, I know no man, um, which is what Mary said to Gabriel when Gabriel said, you're going to conceive and bear a child. And Mary says, she knows no man, she's a virgin. She didn't directly know the full embodiment of erotic desire on earth. This isn't really explained that much here at the moment. We're almost at the end of the canto. It's going to be picked up completely and fully in the next couple of cantos. But it's signalled to us that this is going to be about the lustful side of erotic love, the kind of final thing that needs to be faced full on. Um, it's going to be quite terrifying um, for Dante to move um, right to the top of Mount Purgatory. Um, a couple of other allusions at the end of the canto signal that to us. Um, Diana's chastity is celebrated from ancient mythology and also the chastity of marriage is celebrated. Um, I guess because that's an erotic love that was lived out but went into building a relationship. But the canto ends with a kind of nice finish even though there's going to be so much more now to think about and because Dante refers to how these souls now in the fire are healing the final wound before they can move towards paradise. And this mention of the word wound actually goes back to the beginning of the canto because Dante is described in his yearning to know more before he asked the question to Virgil and had that status is wonderful myth explained to him. He's described as having an open wound, the wound of knowledge, you might say, that desires to know more. And so something of that wound, at least, has been healed in this canto. Um, Dante's desire has been met, has been addressed, you might say, which is really important because we're supposed to have desire. We're supposed to have these longings because it's only when we really pursue them with all the risks that that entails, all the mistakes we do make, but nonetheless hold true to them, keep our wills focused, that we're able to move up to as well and keep climbing up Mount Purgatory.